Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage podcast. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. I am fresh off of NATA 2017 and really excited to share today's topic with you, risk and liability. I've been so intrigued by this topic recently, and I think it's going to be a really good episode. This is a topic that has become increasingly relevant to me as a business owner and something I feel becomes more well-discussed the deeper we get into our careers. Regardless of where you're at in your career, it's important to understand the chances you take each day at work and how to best protect yourself in case something goes wrong. I've noticed that this topic is scary for some people, but avoiding discussing things that could go wrong does not prevent them from happening. If anything, you could put yourself in a worse scenario by not taking the time to prepare yourself for the worse. The same way we get certified in CPR, develop EAPs, and rehearse emergency situations, we need to do the same for our careers. I hope as you listen today, you will understand the gravity of what we are discussing and take it not as a fear tactic, but rather how to get your affairs in line so that when something happens, you are protected. Key learning objectives. Recognize the professional responsibility we have to understand the legal implications of our practice as healthcare practitioners. Establish baseline understandings in your current position as an athletic trainer and get necessary documentation to protect your career. Dismiss naivete and ignorance as an excuse for lack of understanding and arm yourself with appropriate information to reduce your liability as a practitioner. I looked up risk on dictionary.com and I didn't love the definition, which was exposure to the chance of injury or loss, though the secondary option was a better fit, a hazardous or dangerous chance. The idioms they provided were actually a bit more of what I was looking for. At risk means to be in a dangerous situation or status or in jeopardy. And to take or run a risk is to expose oneself to the chance of injury or loss or to put oneself in danger. What I'd like to focus on for this episode is that last definition, taking or running a risk, which is exposing oneself to danger. I know we are all aware of the potential dangers of our job, including being the first to respond to a scene, having the potential to save a life, and overall being trusted with the welfare of others. This is not something to be taken lightly, both from a professional or a legal perspective. What I'd like to do for you today is emphasize some of the most important aspects of our job that we can control in order to protect ourselves from legal implications and reduce the risk associated with doing our job. There's no way to completely eliminate the hazards that our job possesses. However, there are ways to implement policies or define various aspects of our work that could protect us in the court of law. The other word we are associating with this episode is liability, which is defined as something disadvantageous. 
Just like with risk, there is inherent liability associated with being an athletic trainer. So it is our responsibility to educate ourselves about the ways we can safeguard ourselves for both everyday practice and when an emergency situation occurs. There are other terms you should familiarize yourself with again if it's been a while since you covered them in your education courses. Tort, the difference between omission and commission, neglect, just to name a few. We're going to cover others in today's episode, but it might be worth cracking that book open or auditing an admin class to refamiliarize yourself with these ideas. It may seem obvious why we need to discuss this topic because no one ever wants to be in trouble. And it's really scary to think about, and we hope it will never happen to us. While it's okay to be afraid of a topic like this, it's important that you understand just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean it won't happen to you. As humans, we always think things will happen to other people and never to ourselves. But the truth is, the longer we stay in our careers, the odds decrease in our favor of being a part of something catastrophic or being named in a lawsuit. I understand this is a topic very few people enjoy discussing, but even if you listen to this episode once a year, you will be doing yourself and your career a huge favor. The truth is, there's no way to really avoid the hazards of our job. We are hired to respond to the situations that everyone else is not trained to. And sometimes mistakes are made or the outcomes of these situations are not favorable. Many times we don't have control over the outcome, especially if we did everything in our scope of practice to help the victim. Sometimes we can't avoid being named in a lawsuit or just generally being roped into the legalities of a circumstance. However, if you've done your due diligence with the items that we're going to talk about today, you massively decrease your likelihood of being found on the losing end of things. No matter where you are in your career, it's not acceptable to be ignorant or naive. That will not play well in a court of law or with an employer. So recognize now that simply because you were unaware of something doesn't mean you will be found innocent. It is your dutiful responsibility as a professional healthcare provider to be in the know of state practice acts, BOC best practices, NATA position statements, and various other documents that will be held against you in the court of law. If you have been practicing up to this point, thinking that nothing will happen to you or you're protected by your employer, you think maybe you're within the scope of your practice or you haven't looked at a statement the NATA has put out in a few years, or you're just generally living under a rock with continuing education and best practices, it has to stop today. There are ways to protect yourself and it must start immediately. You cannot afford to continue practicing with naivete. It is dangerous to your career and our entire profession. Take responsibility and start doing the right thing. Everything I plan to discuss are things that you have complete control over. Some of them might just be little factoids that you weren't previously aware of, 
Whereas others are going to be items you need to spend some time looking up and doing research on. I will give you actionable items at the end of the podcast, but feel free to pause this at any point to jot down notes for yourself. If you start to get overwhelmed, remember what we spoke about in the organization episode. You can chunk out portions and just start somewhere. You don't have to do it all at once. But if you're listening to this episode in the middle of summer when we're releasing it, you may have some time to start working on things before you go back to your setting. Either way, make sure that you're staying focused on how to get some of what we talk about today accomplished. Let's start by discussing the first category, which I am dubbing best practices. These are items mostly produced by outside entities, but that hold us to a certain professional standard. One that could be held against us in the court of law, and I will share with you a bit later a case that examined NATA best practices versus local standing law so that we can understand a little bit better of how the two interact. NATA position statements will likely be part of the documents a lawyer looks at if you are named in a suit that involved potential neglect or wrongdoing. This would mostly be the case if there was a situation deemed to have been improperly managed and could vary from heat illness to lightning sudden cardiac arrest, or various other topics the NATA has position statements on, whether you agree with the outcome of a statement or not. It's important that you read them and discuss the implementation with your organization. One example is that for heat illness, the recommendation is to use a rectal thermometer. Whether you feel uncomfortable with that or your organization feels it is inappropriate, It needs to be discussed openly so that there is a common understanding of how procedures will be implemented. If your organization determines they do not want rectal thermometers being used on their population, get that in writing and explicitly state that despite the professional opinion being to use it, it is your instruction not to do so. By doing this, you protect yourself instead of making a decision or assumption on your own. If this is a proficiency you don't feel comfortable doing, but your employer agrees with the research, you need to find some continuing education and get yourself acquainted. If this is not something that they want you doing, then if something happens, you have written orders to not do so, thereby defending your position to go against the research. This is a really hot topic, no pun intended, right now in athletic training. I recognize that people in various situations fall all along the continuum of what they are able to implement based on best research. The sticking point here is that even if you get this in writing, the larger question is how do you actually provide best care for your patient despite what your organization allowed you to do? If you're in this position, I encourage you to seek out top researchers and have open communication with others in a similar setting or within your district or larger organization to determine not only how best to approach these situations, but how to provide best patient care with the limitations that you're being placed. 
Though it is ideal to attempt to educate your employer about the relevance of position statements and eventually encourage them to be in line with them, if that is not their desire, you shouldn't risk your own career in that fight. Instead, get clear documentation stating otherwise and bring up the conversation yearly. The same discussions should be had for all of the position statements available. Does your organization want heart screening during PPEs? Who makes the decision about lightning protocol? By discussing these openly, you get a clear understanding of what is within your responsibility and what is not, so you can control the level of risk associated with each. What might be more important than NATA standards are your state practice acts. Even in the case where there may not be one, as in California, it has been shown that courts will rule in favor of local mandates as opposed to what our national governing bodies suggest that we do. Some areas I'd like to highlight for you to pay attention to in your state practice are, one, standing orders. If your state requires that you work under the direction of a physician with standing orders, it's imperative that you have these in place. I would encourage you to review them line by line, paying attention to the wording around use of modalities, return to play decisions, concussions, and the specific populations that you treat. If you aren't comfortable with the wording or would like to see something further clarified, I'd encourage you to do so. As well, make sure that what is listed in your standing orders does not conflict with your job description or vice versa. There should be clear identification of what your responsibilities are and when a situation may be outside of your scope of practice. Spend time speaking with the physician about their expectations and review these standing orders yearly. Make sure you are also covered under these standing orders for any per diem work you may pick up. I would encourage you to have a separate set of orders for those populations and circumstances as they are different, but I will leave that up to you and your physician to decide. Your physician and these standing orders can be an ally for you in helping to educate your employer or the organization you work with about best practices. If your physician is in line with your level of understanding, proficiency, and competency on something such as rectal thermometers, it's a good idea to get them to also speak with your employer about why this is best practices. Concussion laws is another area you need to pay attention to in your State Practice Act. Be sure that you read and understand carefully how the concussion law is broken down. Some of them specifically name athletic trainers, whereas others just say licensed healthcare practitioner. Ensure that you understand whether you're allowed to evaluate, diagnose, treat, and or return to play. The verbiage around these can be very sticky and also differ between populations. In California, there is a concussion law for interscholastic athletes and a separate one for youth, meaning anyone who plays sports outside of school. Make sure that you're familiarizing yourself with both of them if they exist in your state. The other primary aspect of your State Practice Act to be familiar with 
is the general licensing aspect of it. What does being a licensed healthcare practitioner in your state actually mean? Some states require a test, others you just have to pay a fee on a regular basis. Make sure you're up to date on the language of the act and definitely make sure that you read new statutes when they are added. There are ways to find ourselves in trouble that don't necessarily have to do with legal responsibilities, but ethical ones. The BOC has a standard of professional practice. The NATA has a code of ethics and has recently created the Professional Responsibility Committee to support legal, ethical, and regulatory practices by promoting adherence. Ethical standards essentially state that we have a responsibility to each other, our patients, and the profession to do the right thing, whether that is a legal matter or not. According to a BOC blog post from May 16th of 2017, written by Carrie Baker, quote, Recently, the Strategic Alliance released a statement on the duty to report, reminding ATs that they have a legal and ethical responsibility to protect the public from those who engage in the practice of athletic training without proper authorization from a state regulatory agency. Failure to report known violators is a failure to protect the athletes, the public, and the profession. You are also at risk as failure to report will result in a disciplinary action by the state and or the BOC. She went on to say, from 2011 to 2012, there was a four-fold increase in the number of disciplinary cases against athletic trainers, most regarding practicing without proper authority. With this said, let me read to you the four primary headings of the NATA Code of Ethics so that you have an idea of what might be a violation. One, members shall practice with compassion, respecting the rights, welfare, and dignity of others. Two, members shall comply with the laws and regulations governing the practice of athletic training, National Athletic Trainers Association membership standards, and the NATA Code of Ethics. Three, members shall maintain and promote high standards in their provision of services. And four, members shall not engage in conduct that could be construed as a conflict of interest, reflects negatively on the athletic training profession, or jeopardizes a patient's health and well-being. Obviously, these are just headings. If you want to read these in more details, head to the NATA's website so that you can gain a better understanding. But the main takeaway with ethics is that you are encouraged to make good decisions. Focus on doing the right thing. Of course, this is arbitrary, but just like we do with our patients, if in doubt, err on the side of caution. Let's go back to taking a look at things from a legal perspective. The first area I want to examine with you is the Good Samaritan Act. 
I know we are all familiar with the term, but do we know if it applies to us or not? For those who need a refresher, the Good Samaritan Law provides basic legal protection for those who assist a person who is injured or in danger. Sounds great, except that we have to read the fine print, which according to uslegal.com says, quote, good Samaritan laws often don't apply to a person rendering emergency care advice or assistance during the course of regular employment, such as services rendered by a healthcare provider to a patient in a healthcare facility, which means that you may not be covered under this law while working, but could potentially if you came upon a scene in a non-work environment. This law does differ state by state, so I would encourage you to Google your state law and understand how it may apply to you. And really, the takeaway here is that you can't operate with the assumption that whatever care you may deliver in an emergency situation will be good enough and you won't be implicated simply because of the Good Samaritan Act. We are trying to move away from operating out of ignorance or assumption, and this is another way that you can empower yourself. Sovereign immunity is another term you should be familiar with, especially if you work for a government organization, which includes public schools, secondary, or university. According to LegalDictionary.com, Sovereign immunity is defined as judicial doctrine that prevents the government or its political subdivisions, departments, and agencies from being sued without its consent. As you can imagine, this could be a very slippery slope, but let me bring your attention to a case from Illinois in 2010. In this ruling, the court decided that there was a duty of care established by the Illinois Athletic Trainers Practice Act, and this duty was separate and independent from the athletic trainer's state employment. As such, the athletic trainers were not permitted to raise the defense of sovereign immunity that would typically be available to state employees. The decision allowed the plaintiff in the case a former member of the university's football team, to maintain a negligence action directly against the athletic trainers. So in this case, it was actually the State Practice Act that prevailed. Again, I want to enforce that we can't rely on certain statutes or laws to hope to protect us in certain situations. We always have to use our best judgment and hope that in the event that something happens, we've done everything in our power to protect ourselves. But I will keep saying it, it's not enough to assume there will be protection in place or to operate from the belief that we will be protected no matter what. Vicarious liability is a term you may not be familiar with, but applies to many situations that we find ourselves in as athletic trainers. This term essentially means that we could be held liable for the actions or inactions of others. 
This would specifically be the case if you are a head athletic trainer who supervises others, or if you are a preceptor, or if you have other administrative duties, such as medical or athletic director. While it may be difficult to avoid this liability altogether, being able to prove that you provided appropriate training and supervision would help to demonstrate your due diligence to avoid the act from occurring, be it omission or commission. Whatever accusations are brought against your junior would also apply to you. So in an effort to avoid being part of vicarious liability, you have a duty to ensure those working underneath you are doing so in appropriate ways. The last one I have to bring up here under the legal aspect of things is informed consent and consent to treat. This is another area that I feel we take for granted and don't always ask the questions to determine if these consents are in place. We mostly assume that the places we practice at regularly have consent to treat for us, but have you ever asked to see a copy or read what the consent to treat says? Just like with your standing orders, there could be limitations in here that you are unaware of. This is also important when you do per diem work. Have you ever thought to ask if you have permission to treat when working with youth specifically? Finding out how this consent has been given and seeing the specific language is beneficial prior to you taking on a contract. At minimum, getting informed consent prior to applying an application would be a good way to ensure you are actually working with the understanding that the patient agrees to be treated by you. There are a few other considerations to keep in mind that aren't directly legal, but could have legal implications. The first one I will touch on is insurance. I say touch on because I went into a good amount of detail about insurance and my thoughts on it during our contract work episode. I advocate for every healthcare professional to carry their own liability insurance policy. Regardless of what type of employment you have, employee or independent contractor, having a policy that you purchase that covers your actions is imperative. Think about physicians. Even if their hospitals have general liability policies, they carry their own malpractice. If you are ever involved in some kind of legal proceedings, you are going to want a policy specifically in place that protects you. It's great if your employer or the organization you're working at also has one, but no one has a more vested interest in your career than you do. Personal professional liability policies are a couple hundred dollars a year. If you're an independent contractor, this is a write-off. If you're an employee, I would encourage you to see if you can have your employer pay for the policy. And no, that's not a conflict of interest. When you're selecting a policy, ensure that you are identified as an athletic trainer. This may seem obvious, but I've seen a good number of policies where the person selected personal trainer or coach. Details like this could void a policy. So take the time to ensure that you're properly designated. 
also make sure that you're selecting a policy that identifies the type of work you're doing, such as full-time employee, part-time contractor, etc. Again, this could potentially void your policy if, for example, it was for a full-time employee and you are being named in a suit while working as a per diem contractor. Your job description is also a piece of paperwork that you want to ensure has been spelt out in great detail. Some details you should be looking for in your, dis- in your job description are a definition or list of populations you will serve. Will it just be patients or student athletes? Are you also responsible for people in the stands or referees? How about coaches or teachers on campus? Knowing what you know now about the Good Samaritan Law, how do you feel about treating those people? If these populations aren't listed in your job description, I would encourage you to have a conversation with administration at your site to understand the expectations and look to add or identify them. Educate your administration so they understand why you might be hesitant to treat additional populations and then get it in writing whatever it is that you all decide on. This will be important in the event you may be charged with negligence for not treating. Along these same lines, make sure your job description details the work you are expected to do. Will you just treat injured athletes or will you also do prevention strategies? Will you work alongside coaches for return to play? Again, it may seem obvious, but if you're accused of doing something that you weren't supposed to do, you need to be able to defend why it was you were doing those things. Specifically consider emergency situations, especially if there are particular responsibilities you might have in the event of an active shooter, a natural disaster, or other scenarios that could arise. If you are expected to be a first responder, consider adding that to your job description. Your job title may also be relevant, especially as you consider vicarious liability. If your name suggests that you oversee others or carry an administrative position, then you could be held liable in that kind of situation. If you don't oversee others, but your title suggests that you do, I would encourage you to consider a title change or find something simpler that better exemplifies the work that you do. Also, ensure that if you do oversee others, that the oversight is detailed in your job description. Or if you don't oversee one, perhaps it would be worth getting that in writing as well. Sometimes it's as important to document the things we don't do as much as it is the things that we do. Which is a good bridge to my next topic, documentation. I know that we're all pretty well informed about the importance of documenting what we see, but we are also starting to see the importance of documenting what we don't see. Conducting an evaluation that shows no obvious signs and documenting that at the time could come back to protect you in a very critical situation. Being able to show or prove that you did actually conduct an evaluation and your findings showed nothing significant would be important in the event of, say, 
a concussion. If you allow someone to return to play and they later become symptomatic, this could look very bad. Almost like you didn't do your job and perhaps you were negligent. If someone then goes to see what your evaluation showed, but it looks like nothing was done, you could find yourself in serious trouble. Instead, if you were able to show that you conducted an evaluation, it had no significant findings, but it timestamped and dated the injury, it shows that you did your professional obligation. Along the same lines, remember that documenting conversations you have with physicians, parents, coaches, administrators is an important aspect of charting your notes. As you continue to follow up with parties involved, it's best to do this in writing via text or email if possible. But if it is over the phone or in person, make sure that you jot down a few notes regarding that. Let's take a look at some case studies so that we can get a point of reference for all of this information. In August 2014, there was a case in California where an athletic trainer was accused of negligence. The details are as follows. The certified athletic trainer was not present when an ankle injury occurred, so the student athletic trainer tended to it. The student athletic trainer found no bruising, deformity, or other abnormality, and after taping the athlete's ankle, had him jog, zigzag, sprint, and backpedal. Athlete told the student athletic trainer he felt fine and was then cleared to return to the game. Upon returning, the athlete fractured two of his cervical vertebra and injured his spinal cord when he was tackled. It was alleged that the initial injury caused the secondary one. Quoting from the article on athleticbusiness.com, in most cases involving negligence, the courts will use a basic negligence standard, which asks the jury to decide how a reasonably careful or prudent person would have acted in the same situation. In some cases, however, especially when dealing with medical personnel, the courts will look at the national standards by a national organization to hold the individual to a higher standard of care. This was at the core of Rios versus Grossmont Union High School District. The prosecution argued that the certified and student athletic trainer should be held to the standards of NATA. The defense, or the district in this case, argued that standards from the California Interscholastic Federation, or CIF, should govern, not NATA. Again, quoting from the article here, in support of its position, the district argued NATA standards were not binding because California does not regulate athletic trainers and does not require high schools to have a certified athletic trainer on staff. The district also asserted the CIF is the governing body for high school sports in California, and it publishes a sports medicine handbook that is meant to serve as a guideline for school administrators, coaches, sports medicine staff, students, and parents to use to protect the health and welfare of students. The court ruled in favor of the defense, stating that NATA standards did not established the standard of care, and thus the district was not negligent. 
They therefore deferred to the CIF standards, deeming that both the certified and student athletic trainer exercised reasonable care under the circumstances. If you're interested in reading the full article, it's on athleticbusiness.com under the title, Negligence and Athletic Trainers at Heart of Football Lawsuit. Here's another one, this time regarding a concussion, also found on athleticbusiness.com. In September of 2014, an athlete in Montana collapsed at a home football game from a traumatic brain injury that left him paralyzed. The family sued the district, athletic trainer, and health system for missteps during the concussion return to play protocol. The week before his collapse, the athlete had a head injury during an away game of which he was taken to the local hospital's emergency room and diagnosed with, quote, a minor closed head injury. Later that week, he was diagnosed with a concussion and given a doctor's note stating he was not to return to football activities until September 15th, which would have been three days after he collapsed. According to the lawsuit, the head football coach sent the athlete to take an impact test on September 10th. The athletic trainer reviewed the results the following day, deeming it a passing test, but did not speak directly with the athlete or review his medical records. The athlete participated in non-contact drills that day, and the next day was verbally cleared by either the athletic trainer or the football coach, despite doctor's orders. He played in the first half of the varsity football game, did not suffer any big hits, but collapsed on the sideline shortly after halftime. The family is suing for upwards of $20 million since their son is now a quadriplegic and requires around-the-clock medical care. I wasn't able to find a ruling in this case, so I'm not sure if the AT was cleared of these charges, but obviously it doesn't look good. You may listen to these cases and think, you would never make those decisions in the moment. It's easy to look back with all of the details in front of you and determine how you would have done things differently. I'm sure you do that now with various situations. As the common saying goes, hindsight is always 2020. But if you would take an approach to your practice of how would I defend this decision in a court of law, you are working ahead of the curve. If you're doing your due diligence to make decisions with all the information and from the best place possible, that can be defended. I'm sure we all recognize the importance of what was discussed today, not only to our individual careers, but also in how we protect the patients we serve and how we progress as a profession. It doesn't bode well for any kind of professional who is often named in a lawsuit or found guilty of wrongdoing. If athletic trainers are going to be named, we want to make sure it's for positive reasons, such as saving a life instead of negligence. I recognize there won't always be ways to avoid this completely, as we are healthcare practitioners after all, and often involved in emergency situations. This is why we want to do our best to make sure that documents and understandings are in place to protect us, but also recognize when and how to act appropriately. It is not acceptable to be naive or ignorant on these topics. Saying, 
I don't know or I wasn't aware in the court of law won't hold up when you're being deposed or sitting on the testimony stand. As an active healthcare professional, we have a responsibility to be informed of the legal implications of the work we do. I don't want you to act out of fear, but I do want you to recognize there are ways to protect yourself. I think we've covered enough in this episode to provide a good amount of actionable items for you to work on as you prepare for your next school year or even just look forward to new opportunities. I know I learned a great deal by researching this and have already changed a few of our practices in the company. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. We have also started a new Facebook group, The Business Advantage, to allow greater discussion about these topics. On our next episode, the last one for this season, we will be discussing non-traditional models of athletic training. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.